You might know ADP as the biggest name in payroll, but that's just the beginning. Because ADP is transforming the way great work gets done. With HR, talent, time, benefits, and payroll. Informed by data and designed for people. That's ADP. Always designing for people. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. With Joe Biden dominating the field, other Democratic presidential candidates keep floating proposals to try to break through uh, and amid uh, and gain more primary voters. We'll talk about uh, Bernie Sanders' proposal to block new charter schools and Kamala Harris's proposal to bridge the gender pay gap. What are these candidates uh, just below uh, Joe Biden in the polls trying to do and who are they trying to peel off? Uh, from Joe Biden's support. Welcome. I'm Paul Gigo with the uh, my colleagues here, Kim Strassel. Hello, Kim. Hi, Paul. And one Kyle Peterson. Hello, Kyle. Hello, hello. All right. So let's uh, let's talk about this. The Democratic field, of course, fascinating uh, to look. Uh, Joe Biden has, I think, surprised certainly surprised me with his strength since he announced uh, uh, his candidacy, getting into the race, bouncing up to a very solid 40 percent. Uh, in most polls and uh, solid support from African-Americans uh, clearly across the Democratic spectrum. And one of the things that the people who are supporting Joe Biden are saying is that they want to beat Donald Trump. And Biden looks like the guy who can do it. Appeal in the Midwest industrial states for one thing. Appeal with his experience uh, uh, for another. And uh, uh, that's one of the – that seems to be um, – it's always on the mind of primary voters every presidential election to some extent. But this year seems to be taking on an even more important role, this idea of who can win, electability uh, in favor of, uh, of Joe Biden. Never mind that electability is a fairly uh, hard thing to pin down. You never know – uh, some people who thought uh, Don, Donald Trump was not electable turned out to be electable. Uh, other people who've uh, said uh, some candidates were sure things didn't win. Uh, uh, been a lot of those uh, across the years. But right now, the other Democrats in the field are coming up with proposals, Kim, to try to break through. And they, they seem to be trying to do it not on the question of electability, but on policy proposals. Pay attention to my proposal. And here we have uh, uh, one this week, came out on the weekend, Bernie Sanders, on education. And he came out uh, four square against uh, any more new charter schools and in favor of a lot more uh, federal uh, spending on education. Uh, what's he up to here? Well, just on the broad point, by the way, I, my view is, yes, they're trying to break through, but I think the strategy for all of these second-tier candidates, uh, everyone that is neither um, neither Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, is to simply hang on, right? Because the idea out there is that for all of Joe Biden's support, there's still you know 60% of the Democratic electorate that has not made up their mind, and they're currently all divided between you know 20 20 other different candidates. So if you can hang on and other people drop out, you may get that support in the end. And so I, I think that's what is motivating some of this. It's a it's a survival strategy. Mm -hmm. But Bernie Sanders, it's very clear here 
what he's attempting to do, well, first of all, is to consolidate his union support. Obviously, teachers unions, um, et cetera, they hate charter schools and they love a bunch of the other parts of Bernie Sanders' new education plan, which fundamentally is all about giving tons of new federal money to different schools across the country, public schools. Um, I think this is also weirdly a play for minority support because this was uh, a big problem for Bernie the last time around. He ended the primary with only 14 percent of the black vote. Um, I'm not necessarily as sure that that is wise because while there are civil rights groups out there like the NAACP that tend to ally themselves with teachers unions, uh, among the black electorate and the Hispanic electorate, charter schools are a pretty popular thing. Um, Our colleague Jason Riley had a very good column on this this week uh, talking about a poll that was recently done of Democratic primary voters. And and of those, 58 percent of black Democratic primary voters support charter schools and and as do 52% of Hispanics. So uh, I think that that's what he's aiming that at, at this at, but I'm not as sure that it's as big a winner as he might think. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that is an interesting question. Uh, the NAACP, of course, is financed by uh, unions uh, uh, to a significant degree, including the teachers' unions. Um, and it's the teachers' unions' endorsement, Kyle, that is the big prize here. The National Education Association, the American Federation of Teachers. If you have been uh, like me and gone to a Democratic presidential convention, you will notice that public unions are a huge proportion of the delegates. <laughs> and teacher, members of the teachers' unions in particular are a big chunk of the delegates. And uh, that endorsement from the NEA and the AFT is a prize thing to get. And he's got competition for that. I mean, Kamala Harris has talked, I think, if I remember properly, 10000 bucks um, for each teacher uh, across the country. And Bernie here is pitching now a $60,000 minimum wage for teachers across the country. Now, that's not going to matter much in New York where most of them will make more than that. But it probably does in huge chunks of the country, and that would be essentially a public payment uh, from federal government to make up whatever gap there is between local pay and 60K. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that that union endorsement and organizing is going to be key in the primary and the general election. But to Kim's point, one of the things that may be interesting to watch here is whether whether it sort of drives a wedge um, into pieces of the Democratic coalition. I mean, it was very interesting last year, the governor's race in Florida um, Ron DeSantis, who ended up winning by a very narrow margin, there was some exit polling that showed he had surprisingly high support um, from particularly African-American women. And there was some speculation that maybe that's because he he ha- had come out strongly for charter schools, for vouchers, for school choice. Um, and the opponent there, Andrew Gillum, um, had essentially said they wanted he wanted to roll all of that back. So um, it's, it would be interesting to see if that, that wedge um, continues to exist or even widens in this upcoming election. I mean, the, the, the truth of the matter is that these, these, these families just see that charter schools are working. Um, one thing I would throw out is um, there was a, a study recently by the National Bureau of Economic Research that was published in Boston. Um, Boston li- lifted its charter cap, and over about four or five years, the number of charter schools in this city essentially doubled. 
Um, the city set up the rules so that these proven providers were encouraged to start new campuses. Um, and what the study found was that those campuses were just as effective as the original. So the critique of charters that they don't replicate um, essentially didn't didn't hold any water. And the, and the gains are huge. I also think, uh, Kim, that this uh, Sanders proposal is an attempt to have a wedge against Joe Biden. Because Biden is, uh, remember, he was associated for eight years with Barack Obama, who supported charter schools. Now, Bill Clinton also supported charter schools. Both education secretaries under uh, Barack Obama, Arnie Duncan and uh, John King, supported charters. So uh, what is Biden going to do? Is he going to go left and endorse the, uh, uh, the, the moratorium, which could in turn, as Kyle suggested, give Trump an issue in the presidential election uh, campaign, especially the ability to appeal to minority voters? Or is he going to stick with the Obama proposal and and, and, and maybe have that become a, a source of real debate in the primary? Yeah, of all of the things that Joe Biden has been relatively quiet on, he's been particularly quiet on the question of education. And I think you just put your finger on exactly why. It's because, um, you know, the oh, look, if you go back and you look through Joe Biden's history, uh, he, he was initially a fan of the No Child Left Behind Act, which was George W. Bush's education reform uh, that dealt with standardized testing and other things. Um, he has since said he'd soured on that um, and, and a number of people did, even some conservatives. But, uh, you know, the another interesting little story about Joe Biden is his brother actually runs a for-profit charter school chain. Um, is that right? Yeah, Frank and, Biden. Um, by the way, yes, just and, on that point of for-profit, uh, Sanders called explicitly for the abolition of any for-profit charter schools. Now, most charters are nonprofit, but he said he calls for the explicit uh, end of for-profits. I wonder if he knew about Frank Biden, because I didn't. Well, there you go. So <laughs> I think that could be... Um, <laughs> well, he's. Uh, I think he's the the president of it, um, but but he certainly is very involved in that movement, and it's and you know that jumped out at me too, and it's what made me remember that detail is you know when when you have critics of charters, it's often they don't necessarily go after the for profit ones in particular, and it was a big bold letters in Bernie's plan on his website. You know we're going to get rid of for profit charter schools, so um, it'll be interesting to see how Biden responds to this. But you make a good point here, Paul, is it broadly within the Democratic Party, we've seen a big pushback against the reformists, uh, especially in the past you know, decade. The teachers unions have really made this a litmus test for their support um, and really started to come down on those Democrats. And you know, for a while, there was a lot of them that were embracing real reform in schools and in particular charter schools and uh, experimentation. So Biden, after all those years of association and clearly family association and a long history in the Senate where he's been on record with a lot of different proposals, um, I think it's going to be a very difficult area for him. The other the other interesting figure to watch here is Cory Booker, who has a long record of being in favor of school choice um, and has similarly sort of hedged on it. Um, I haven't seen recent statements from him, but when he first launched his campaign, um, one of the reporters uh, asked him, you know, about that. Are you still going to support school choice? And he responded, um, words to the effect of, I'm going to run the most pro-public school campaign uh, this country's ever seen. And so he just completely dodged that question. And if he, 
you know, if he were to get on the debate stage in four weeks, uh, four weeks from now and say charter schools saved Newark schools, you know, then then we would have a real debate. I just don't know that we're going to get there. Yeah. Keep in mind, uh, uh, charter schools are public schools. These aren't private schools. These aren't parochial schools, religious schools. They are public schools. They're just organized differently, usually uh, independent of union rules and uh, uh, various other uh, obligations that allow it to operate independently and have different uh, standards. All right. Uh, uh, the, uh, we're talking about uh, the, some of the other Democratic presidential pro- candidate proposals other than Joe Biden. You're listening to Potomac Watch from The Wall Street Journal. You might know ADP as the biggest name in payroll, but that's just the beginning. Because ADP is transforming the way great work gets done. With HR talent, time, benefits, and payroll. Informed by data and designed for people. That's ADP. Always designing for people. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal... This is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Jago with uh, Kim Strassel and uh, Kyle Peterson. And let's take up now uh, Kamala Harris, the senator from California. She has a new proposal out, uh, Kyle, to bridge the so-called uh, gender wage gap between men and women. She's citing the familiar, if uh, I think inaccurate, proposal uh, uh, figure that, uh, uh, that women only make 80 percent of, uh, of male wages uh, uh, overall. Um, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, uh, having to do with life choices and so on. Uh, but she has a, a, a I think a, a, a notable proposal for what to do about it. What is it? Well, essentially it's to flip the burden of proof. So instead of having employees, um, complain to regulators that my company is discriminating against me. Or, Which you can do under current law. Sure. Or, or filing discrimination lawsuits. Um, she would require any company with over a hundred employees, um, to prove that it is not discriminating. So within three years of this plan passing, um, any company with 100 employees would have to get an equal pay certification from the federal government. And the main qualification to get one um, is they have to prove that, quote, to the extent that pay disparities do exist for similar jobs, companies will be required to show the gap is based on merit, performance, or seniority, not gender, unquote. So the way this is, the, the, the trouble is the way this is being reported is just, so here's the subhead from Vox. If companies don't want to pay women equitably, they will pay a fine instead. You know, that seems pretty straightforward. But the problem with that is it's this this huge fudge fudge factor within merit, performance, seniority. You know, if you got a couple lawyers and one of them wrote, two long briefs and one of them wrote five short briefs and one of them lost a case and won a case. I mean, how how do you, as a federal regulator, um, get involved in, you know, a million different companies judging the performance of their employees? It is exceptionally hard. In fact, it's impossible uh, uh, because pay pay questions, uh, I'm a manager myself, and making questions, decisions about pay are uh, are complicated enough. I mean, and uh, the measurements you use are, uh, uh, you know, performance-based. And uh, obviously some people start, uh, uh, you know, at a lower salary at a comparable age, so they might take a while to catch up even if they're very good. Uh, other people are, uh, they jump uh, uh, from uh, a high-paying position at another job and you, you want to get them, so you got to pay them a little more for, for, frankly, for comparable work. 
these are the dynamics of the marketplace, and they really have nothing to do with discrimination. Uh, so, Kim, I mean, it's uh, it's hard for me to believe you're going to have a a national pay commissar uh, come in and uh, for every company that has a hundred um, employees go in there. Please prove to us that you have uh, that this is all based on on merit and it had the disparities and have nothing to do with uh, discrimination. It's it's uh, it's a recipe for essentially politicizing pay throughout the uh, private economy. Well, it's also a recipe for an incredibly complex system to address something that doesn't really exist. Um, you know, uh, people who have done studies on the supposed pay gap, the complexity of all of the, the decisions that go into pay of individual person. But, you know, if you if you look out and you see these very broad numbers that the left will often cite showing a, a pay gap in a specific industry, when you drill down into it, it, it often most of that that disparity has to do with priorities, individual priorities and choices. You know, women, for instance, tend to, to work fewer hours, especially married women with children, because if they're given a choice between overtime, which produces more money, or working at home, um, they or, or going home and spending more time with their children, most of them choose that. Um, and there's a lot of different factors like that that pay in. And when you begin to strip those out, there isn't really a pay gap at all. So, I mean, th th this is the other thing is sort of making government the solution to a, a non-existent problem. And that leads us to the question is why is Kamala Harris doing this? And we were just talking about Bernie Sanders and, you know, this pitch to minority voters. You know, this is clearly a pitch to women voters um, for whom, especially on the left, this is a this has become this dominating theme. And even though there's not a lot of accuracy to it, by the way, just one small clarification. I looked it up on the break and Frank Biden is a former charter school executive. <laughs> I see. OK, well, that's a that's a, 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 a interesting, and I still think that Bernie will probably bring that up in a, in a, in a debate. <laughs> Kamala Harris is uh, is, is, is languishing uh, uh, right now. I think fourth or fifth in the Democratic field. You got Biden, then you got Bernie, then you've got Elizabeth Warren, and, and then she's somewhere in there with the Pete Buttigieg, uh, the mayor of South Bend, and head of Beto O'Rourke, uh, former Texas congressman. But uh, I think Harris's uh, calculation is that if the air goes out of the Biden candidacy, candidacy uh, she's not going to have to run through Warren and, uh, and, and Biden uh, and Bernie on the left. She can peel off some of their support and, and inherit whatever, uh, leave, whatever support leaves Biden. Right. And these these proposals, I think, are best understood as um, bids for attention. I mean, the field is you've got 24 candidates. I think that last count I saw um, the debate stage is going to be set for 20. So there are some of these people that are not even going to be in the first debate um, and they're they're trying to get their message across. They're trying to figure out a way to, to get some attention, connect with voters. And to some extent, it seems like it's working. So I saw a recent poll. Elizabeth Warren has been um, at the forefront of just putting out policy white paper after policy white paper, um, not often not really, uh, really thought through or great ideas from my point of view. Um, but that's what she's been doing. And I saw a poll recently that, um, you know, the most liberal members of the Democratic coalition now prefer her as a candidate to Bernie Sanders. So it seems like there's some indication that this uh, this churn of, of white papers um, is is getting some has having some effect. 
Yeah, it's interesting. And of course, Biden is not uh, being Biden is being as unspecific as possible, I think, in his uh, policy proposals, aiming his campaign directly at Donald Trump, taking Trump on and saying it's a matter of of, of presidential decorum. I'm going to bring normalcy and respect back to the White House uh, without making a lot of policy proposals. And I think that we'll, the, the, the other Democrats are trying to test to see if that is, in fact, a strategy that can persist under pressure with everybody else coming out with uh, with a lot of ideas, Kim. Yeah, and it's a question that I don't think can be a lasting one. I think he can get away with it now, and it's probably wise for him, right? Because it's the best way for him to avoid this giant divide in the party at the moment between the progressive wing that wants a lot more radical proposals uh, and a more moderate wing that is looking more for a you know a return to the Obama years sort of. Uh, way to go. And so, you know, this allows him to ignore it. But can he do it forever? Probably not, because at some point here again, remember, and it won't likely come until after the debates, um, but some people are going to drop out. They're going to run out of money. They're going to realize they don't have a shot. And then you're going to start getting uh, people uh, mounting behind uh, a progressive candidate on the other side. And I think that that's where this ends up going is Biden versus a progressive. And then he's going to have to address some of these policy issues. But but by holding his fire now, he kind of preserves his optionality so he can tailor his message later to whatever whoever that opponent, the opponent that he ends up facing uh, is, which is the, the trouble of putting out all these policy papers. I mean, especially on the Green New Deal, there's been kind of a, a rising of the figures. You know, my new Green, Green New Deal is six trillion and yours is eight trillion. And <laughs> Biden, by not participating in that, um, you know, when we get down the road and he's mano a mano, you know, if somebody has five trillion, he can say two trillion, which is uh, a figure that is uh, maybe will be enough to placate some of the progressive base while also seeming more realistic to the the moderate center of the party. And the first test of this will be in the debates you mentioned uh, uh, late in June. Uh, uh, oh joy! Uh, uh, Democratic uh, presidential debates are already here, uh, or. Uh, 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 They will be in a month. All right. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back later in the week with another edition of Potomac Watch.